Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today I bring you an interview with none other than the Millennial Money Woman. Fiona is a professional in the personal finance field who also blogs and writes on her website, themillennialmoneywoman.com. I spoke with her and we had an excellent conversation about the state of financial education in America, what dollar cost averaging is, and about the basic steps required for you to retire, but not only just retire, but to retire early. Honestly, it is my favorite episode to date. So without further ado, Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm so happy to have you here. I've actually been looking through your blog over the past couple weeks. Very well put together. Very good information. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time on my hands, but darn it if I'm not going to find time to read some of these articles. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I really, that's kind of the goal with the website, the blog, creating kind of like a crisp, I think you said earlier, like a crisp, clean page and breakdown of some of those financial topics. So hopefully you and your readers will and, and your listeners will really enjoy it and take a little bit of, you know, value from some of the information that's presented here. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's something that's very much needed in the world today is just more access to this knowledge. And especially with you being, I'm comfortable enough to admit it, a lot more qualified than I am to be putting out this kind of material. But it's okay. That's why I talk to people with much better credentials than me. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you said you said it really. There's so many people, especially young professionals and millennials, that really are lacking kind of that financial literacy knowledge. And I don't think it's them to blame, though, because I mean, I was in high school and I was in middle school in America, right? And we never, at least in my schools, never were taught about financial literacy concepts or just even the basics about how to write checks or, although that's kind of an outdated practice nowadays, but you know what I mean, like balancing a checkbook or balancing your bank account, following a budget, etc. When I started to get involved in a lot of the community efforts and obviously through my job as well, I realized that that lack of financial literacy knowledge is something that probably everyone needs, but doesn't really know how to ask for that. So that's kind of the genesis of this website. And I'm glad to hear you, you know, found it fairly helpful as you leaf through it. Absolutely. And I do want to clarify my Chris comment was how clean the website is. Now, guys, I look through a lot of financial blogs, especially for people who want to come on my show. And it's it's very well put together. It's very easy to look at, unlike some blogs that I'm not going to mention. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> and then there are a couple points I wanted to address from what you just said. First off, I 100% agree with you. I actually was being interviewed on the Millennial to Millionaire podcast, and I actually have a degree in finance, and there wasn't even a course on personal finance. It was just kind of assumed that, oh, well, you're learning corporate finance, and then a lot of this stuff will transfer over to personal finance. But we never actually went into personal finance concepts. Like the calculations, sure, that works. But you don't really get taught on what's a 401k, what's the difference between that and an IRA. So I think for sure it's not anyone's fault except for whoever creates curriculums in high school and college. But there almost seems to be a concentrated effort for there to not be this knowledge. I went to college for finance. I have a degree in finance, and I never had to take a personal finance class. So something is wrong with that. I agree with you there. Right now, actually, there are only 21 states in the United States that have a requirement to take personal finance in order to graduate from high school. And when I read that statistic, which is very recent, I think that's as of 2020, it's just staggering. You know, I mean, that's that's below 50% of states in the U.S., in America, that require personal financial literacy as an elective to graduate. And I think you're right that it's difficult to incorporate, obviously, financial literacy into your core curriculum because theory is theory right? Like we learn in college, there's so many theoretical aspects to specific classes. However, actually putting these things in practice, that's totally different, especially when you incorporate your emotional aspect to the hard earned money 
the time and the effort that you spend earning that money, basically, because obviously, a lot of classes, personal finance classes included, they suggest to invest X amount of money in the stock market. But if you're spending, let's say 40 hours a week trying to earn this money, and then you invested in the stock market and see your stocks drop your value, your portfolio value drop in value, there's that emotional connection. And I don't think a lot of classes per se, really educate and train people in that emotional aspect in that behavioral aspect, how to react to markets or the economy in general, if you know, there's a drop in value or other other areas like that. So it's definitely difficult to compare the theoretical aspect along with the emotional aspect. Absolutely. And the emotional, I think that's mostly a training thing. And I guess partially an educational thing, because you can tell somebody five, 10 times that, hey, the markets go up, markets go down. And people go, yeah, yeah, of course, markets go up, markets go down. And then the markets go down. The boys become men when your stock prices or your portfolio drops 20% in the middle of nowhere and you go, huh, well, I guess this is fine. Versus, oh no, I messed up. Stock market isn't for me. Let me go ahead and pull out and sell everything. So I think that's more of a, not just education. I think that's like a training thing. Something you got to play with and really experience a handful of times when maybe you only have $100, $200 at risk to really get a feel for oh, well, this just kind of happens. Like there's a 5% change every two weeks nowadays, but you just got to understand that that's going to be a thing. And with there being zero education at all, much less any kind of training, people aren't prepared for that. That's a fantastic point, actually, Alex. It's true. I mean, people really aren't prepared for it. I'd love to share two resources that have helped me, especially also growing up, you know, younger in my teenage years that have kind of helped me better understand the emotional aspect as it relates to finance. So the first thing is a book, and it's called The Behavior Gap, and it's written by Carl Richards. It's actually a pretty cool book about finance, and it's not, I mean, it's not boring. It's like 200 pages, roughly, very easy to read. And believe it or not, there are so many illustrations in here on the back of a napkin. (laughs) But the point (laughs) is, this book really describes some really simple behavioral finance characteristics and traits that help the everyday investor. So obviously, it talks about the very commonly known phrase, you want to buy low and sell high. Those are a couple of things that it talks about, but it really dissects that behavioral aspect as it relates to finance too. So that's one thing that really helped me personally better understand the emotional and financial aspect. And then the other one, you know, you, you got me thinking, When you said that a lot of people, they're not prepared when it comes to the market, when they see their balances drop because of a market drop, there's this online program and it's called howthemarketworks.com. And it's a free stock market game where basically you have, I don't know, you buy $50,000, $100,000, it's free money, right? And you essentially invest that in stocks, whatever you want and however you want. And you are able to see kind of with your play money, how the markets increase, how the markets decrease, and you're really able to dip your toe in the water without actually losing the value of your own portfolio. And the reason why I suggest this is when I was in, I wanna say high school, early high school, this was a game I ended up playing with the vice principal of the high school, we just decided to make a wager. And at the end of like the first three months or so of our wager, whoever won, as in whoever had more money left over, would be, uh, I don't know, treated to an ice cream or whatever. And it's funny, because that was my first real experience in the stock market, you know, without my actual money. And I did win, by the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was so cool, because I finally realized as I don't know, a 16 or 15 year old, This is how the market works. You put in money, you find a company, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down, and it just varies by nature. And, you know, maybe one of your viewers might might want to do this, dabble in it, it's free. So it might be something worth exploring. So this sounds like it's paper trading. Is that basically what it is? Yeah, it's essentially paper trading. But you know, you can basically look at many different stocks or 
funds, ETFs, mutual funds, etc. And try to figure out how to best invest your money for whatever your financial goals are. So if your goal is just to grow your money steadily over X amount of years, you can do that and you can see how long and steadily it takes for your money to grow. Otherwise, you can also figure out, you know, how to kind of day trade. I'm not really the biggest fan of day trading, but it's it's just kind of a cool tool to figure out how trading even works because I know a lot of high school students or even college students, they aren't technically familiar with how trading works, how you actually type in the ticker symbol, press buy, press sell. So it's a really good game to kind of get acquainted with how to trade in the first place. I don't know if I would keep it, you know, for a year or so, but it's really good to just dabble in it and and kind of figure out and explore the basic functions or the inner functions of these trading platforms out there. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. I remember for, I want to say it was maybe my 13th, 14th, or maybe even 15th birthday. Um, I was a big reader always growing up. Mm -hmm. And so my aunt had taken me at a local bookstore and I was like, oh, well, pick a book. Well, the book that I picked out was, I forget what it was. It was, it was like a how-to for mutual funds. And I read the book, but at no point did they give the exact instructions for mechanically how to buy a mutual fund, which actually I moved into my house and I looked through my box of books that my mom had sent in. Cause you know, when you get your first house, you get the inaugural, Hey, here's all your crap, mm -hmm. uh, store it in your <laughs> garage now. So I actually found it. I still have that mutual fund book. <laughs> so like I knew about investments. I didn't invest for since at least, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever that range is. And I never learned how to invest. I never actually invested because I didn't mechanically know, okay, so the only way to buy one of these mutual fund thingamajigs that we're going to spend this entire book talking about is first you got to go to a brokerage, open an account. Then what you're going to do is you're going to go to the trade page. Then you select the fund, click buy, and that's it. So because I was missing that mechanical knowledge of, okay, I know buy the mutual fund. How do I do that? So I ended up not investing until I ended up getting to college. And then in college, guys, I highly recommend paper trading. Paper trading is, it's monopoly is what it is. Paper trading to investing in the stock market is the same as monopoly is to investing in real estate. So you get this fake money, you go out and you can buy stocks. So they give you, and you can set up whatever the number you want is, $50,000, $100,000, $1,000, and go through and say, okay, I want 10 shares of Apple, 50 shares of Microsoft, you know, fill in the blank. And then you're going to get notifications and it's going to look like a brokerage account. And you're going to be able to see every day, oh, those 50 shares of Microsoft, well, they just lost half their value. So it's like you're investing in the market, but you're not risking any of your money. It's a game, but it uses the actual price movements of the stock market. For someone who's never really traded in stocks before, had stocks before, paper trading is a fantastic option to get access to the market, but with having zero risk. And you get to play on different strategies and see, oh no, I just lost $10,000 in the last 10 minutes because the price of oil went down or something like that. Because the real world events are going to affect the stock prices, which are going to affect your stocks, which you don't really own. So you get to experience everything without actually risking your money. Yeah, that's the best. That's really the best part about these types of virtual games or simulations, if you will. And I think you explained it so succinctly. I couldn't have done it better. It's, it's really just a simulation, just without the risk of your own money. And especially the younger you are, you know, if any of your audience have kids, possibly, this might be a fantastic way to start training your kids or kind of getting them introduced to the market. So once they're really earning money and ready to invest, they're already familiar with it. Because like you said earlier, Alex, you know, if you aren't familiar with something, it's human nature really to tend to shy away from things that we're uncomfortable with. It's just natural. So by really knowing and exposing yourself to these types of automated or simulated games, if you will, I think it's a fantastic way to really get comfortable with investing and trading and that will truly pay dividends. And there's no pun intended on that. Like it will <laughs> truly pay dividends down the road. 
But yeah, definitely. I completely agree with what you said. It's really, really good advice. So for those of you that want to know, I'm going to find some resources because I know, I think Schwab or TD Ameritrade has a free paper trading app or website that you can go to. I'm going to see after we're done recording if I can find a couple of these and put them in the description below so that if anyone out there wants to play around with this and see how that goes, you're going to have access to that. But while we're on the subject, we didn't even, we went halfway through introducing you, Fiona, and then we just kind of trailed off into a rant on education on the stock market in America. (laughs) (laughs) So Fiona, you started the Millennial Money Woman blog, the Twitter account, which is where we got acquainted. And that's just fantastic. We've gone through your stuff. We already talked about financial education in America, so we got that covered. (laughs) But uh, so let's go into a little bit about you and your blog. So what do you do like professionally and what kind of things do you go over in your blog? Or rather, what would be your focus on the blog? Like, where is your specialty? Certainly. I mean, Alex, first of all, I want to say thank you to you, obviously, and your audience for listening and for obviously having us. We've already gone so far deep into the conversation, which is just great. I think it's really valuable to explore so many different options out there. But yeah, definitely. I'd love to talk a little bit more about my blog. So as Alex already mentioned, it's called The Millennial Money Woman. And a little bit about myself, right? I really, really love anything to do with finance. And to give you some background, it's because I learned or I saw people fail the hard way because they weren't prepared for financial planning. And those people were actually my grandparents. So my grandparents, when I was roughly five or six, they were basically at the height of building up this magnificent business empire. And they were, it was all in tech and gadgets, and they were very, very successful people. Now, my grandma, my grandpa, they worked every single day, basically for their entire lives. However, when they were, I want to say end of their 60s, something happened to their business empire And essentially, it imploded. So it essentially collapsed. And they were left literally penniless, penniless because of some poor financial decisions that they made along the path. And that included mortgaging their house, mortgaging a couple of things that were all based on the success of their business. And unfortunately, they really didn't have a financial planner or did their own due diligence as it relates to financial planning. And because of that, because of that lack of financial literacy knowledge, if you will, they lost everything that they worked for their entire lives. And they were penniless before they passed away, unfortunately. And you know, seeing them, I, I physically saw them go through this pain and suffering at that age. It's just, it's heartbreaking. And I don't want that to happen to really anyone that I am able to touch like in their lives and in their hopefully positively touch their financial lives. And that happening in my early childhood really engraved itself on who I am and what I want to do and what my purpose is. And that was kind of the genesis of my financial planning blog. And that gets to your second question, Alex, and that is, what is actually my blog, The Millennial Money Woman? And my blog is really focused on just financial literacy concepts. It's supposed to serve as a financial literacy platform for literally any young professional millennial or anyone older than that, too, for that matter. And the purpose and the point is just to really explain some of the financial planning jargon and lingo Because quite frankly, you know, let's face it, financial planning and finance is like a second language. And I know that because when I started in finance, which is what I do, it has, it was basically like learning a second language. It really was because there's so many abbreviations. I feel like I talk in abbreviations all day. (laughs) Like (laughs) It's just so difficult to kind of keep up with the language. Now, obviously, that I know it because I went through the education. I've been in finance for almost five years now. I'm familiar with it. So it's secondhand nature. But for the average American, right, for the average person, it's not second nature. And hearing terms like RMD, IRA, 401k, 403b, it's just a bunch of numbers and alphabet soup. And I want to be able to kind of debunk that alphabet soup and break it down into really simple concepts with illustrations and pictures. I found that a lot of people, they're actually visual. And so am I, by the way. 
So that's kind of another aspect that my website touches upon. So A, I try to break down difficult, complex financial topics into pretty simple ways to understand finance. And B, I try to create pretty cool illustrations that provide some context to what I'm actually writing about. And that's kind of how I hope I help your audience and others who are looking to clarify a couple of financial questions or matters. Well, I think that was beautiful, honestly. <laughs> Thank you so it, much. <laughs> it is it is a second language. It like I had flashbacks for each one you mentioned. I was like, wow, I wonder what she's gonna say for an example of uh, the alphabet soup. And then you ran through them. I was like, well, yeah, yeah, that that definitely is a second language. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Like I, I I think there was one day I was talking to one of my colleagues, and we were like, you know, we we're going through these again these abbreviations, but we were actually talking serious stuff. And one of my other newer colleagues came up to me and was like, Fiona, what are you talking about? It sounds like you're talking like military code or something. You know, we're numbers and letters and numbers and letters. It's just, it really is difficult. And I don't blame people for being maybe a little bit shy, like shied away when they hear this difficult, you know, air quote, difficult language. When in reality, you know, there's always a simpler way to explain it. It's just a lot of finance people, they really like using abbreviations. <laughs> well, of course, it makes us sound more fancy. That's right. Exactly. It's all about sounding fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can go around, throw a couple acronyms out there, and people will be like, wow, he really knows his stuff. Uh huh. <laughs> but I just sandwich some letters together. They don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So something I definitely wanted to talk about with you today, while I have you, is the concept of dollar cost averaging, because I think it's one of the best approaches to long-term investing, definitely one of the things that can bring the most security to a financial picture as far as making sure you have that money there for retirement. But it had occurred to me that it is not a topic that in, I think this is going to be episode 30, in 30 episodes, it's something I don't think I've ever mentioned once on the show. So I figured I'd go get an expert, which I don't think we went into it, Fiona. But for those of you that don't know, Fiona is a CFP, which we've had several of on the show. And that just means they are a financial planning ninja, essentially. And then also she went the additional step to get a master's degree in financial planning. So be aware, we have a bona fide professional on the show here today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I fully plan to take full advantage. And with that being said... Let's go into a little bit of, let's start at a high level. What is maybe just a glossary definition of what is dollar cost averaging? Sure. So dollar cost averaging is probably going to be something everyone here wants to listen to because this is one of the ways that you can become wealthy in the long run. So back to the definition. Dollar cost averaging is essentially an investment strategy that aims to reduce or lessen the impact of market volatility on pretty large purchases of stocks or bonds, for example. And let's break it down into plain English. What that means is if you have, let's say, a thousand bucks, right? So the holiday season is coming up and let's say you get your holiday bonus and it's a thousand dollars. What do you do with that? Let's say you don't have debt, you have a great emergency savings fund. What do you do with this $1,000? Some might say they want to go shopping. That's a viable option. But since we're talking about investing, let's stick to this theme. So $1,000, you have the option of either investing this $1,000 lump sum into the stock market. So what that means is you literally take your $1,000 and you buy something on one certain day in the stock market. That's it. Now, there's a lot of risk with that, though. And this is what dollar cost averaging prevents. Because let's say your $1,000 buys a stock at an all-time high. That means you're actually getting much less stock for that $1,000. If you're buying the stock at an all-time low for $1,000, you're actually getting more of that stock, right? Because it's on sale. So you get more of that item on sale with the same money. And dollar cost averaging, what it does is basically it divides up your $1,000 into, let's say, 10 payments. So $100 every week or so, you invest in the stock market 10 times. So now you're dividing up, you're lowering the risk of market volatility, as the definition said, because over the long run, 
you're basically buying an average of that stock instead of just dumping your $1,000 one day in the stock market and, are, and you know, you're hoping that what you're doing is, is a good strategy. Dollar cost averaging is a way to kind of mitigate that risk if you don't know what you're doing. It's just a way to basically divide up your money over a longer period so you get a better average in what you're buying. It's one of the proven strategies really to become successful financially in the stock market on the long run. And I know my example really just focused over 10 payments, 10 weeks. However, dollar cost averaging really works well if you consistently invest in the stock market let's say every month for the rest of your life or until you retire at least, that's really when dollar cost averaging works its miracles, that long-term perspective. Okay, so let me see if I can't, that was a very good explanation, but just for fun, let's see if I can simplify that into two sentences. Give it a shot here. So dollar cost averaging, in effect, is the act of instead of putting all the money you have into the stock market right now, because that has the potential risk of buying it on a really expensive day where you end up getting less shares or less stock of, or just less value. You get less for your money. Instead of doing that, you divide up your money and you put it in at just at an interval. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20 different pieces of it. You go in at different times because sometimes you might buy it when it's expensive, but sometimes you're going to buy it on sale. Sometimes you're going to buy it on a deep discount, but because you're, say, shotgunning the approach in which you're spraying a whole bunch of times and just getting it at a bunch of different prices, on average, you can get it cheaper as opposed to putting it all in at one time and getting the super expensive price. That's exactly right. It's a very simple but very powerful strategy that helps you build wealth. Absolutely. And another part of this is... Dollar cost averaging is just the idea of investing over a time frame and splitting up when you're putting in that money. And an example of that might be putting money aside in your 401k. Depending on when you get paid, that means that your 401k contributions are going to go in every paycheck, which might be once a month or might be bi-weekly. Either way, you're not putting all your money in on one day, which might happen to be a high day in the market and you don't get as much. But because you're putting it in, 12 or 26 times over the course of the year, you're putting in the same dollar amount. Sometimes you buy when it's high, sometimes when you buy when it's low. But on average, you're getting it at a fair price. That's a perfect example with the 401k. Exactly. If you have that type of investment vehicle, chances are, hopefully at least, you're investing a small portion of your paycheck into that 401k every single two weeks or months, like Alex was saying. And that is the prime example of dollar cost averaging at its best. So Fiona, now that we have this thing that you're putting money in, not so much maybe once a year or once every six months, but once a month or once every two weeks, what are the sort of benefits of doing that long-term or how does this help you with long-term wealth building? Yeah, certainly. I'd love to answer that. So For example, I love talking about how the younger you are, the more chance you have, if you start early with your investing plan, the more chance you have of ending up with more money in the future, even if you invest less when you're younger versus when you're 35. So let me go through some calculations for your audience to kind of really show how dollar cost averaging in the long run will help them build wealth. And again, I want to make sure that This is very clear because, unfortunately, dollar cost averaging does not make miracles happen in the short term, right? So if you're trying to become a millionaire by tomorrow or next year even, chances are dollar cost averaging will not work in your favor. It's a very long-term approach. It's a very long-term strategy, but and, and we're talking three, four decades from now. However, if you apply it and if you are really consistent with your investing, you will see success. It's just a matter of never stopping those investments, right? Even if you have a bad month or whatnot, you still put money toward your investments. And that's really the key right there, the consistency. If you're not consistent with investing, chances are your dollar cost averaging strategy will be thrown off a little bit. All right, so let's go into the calculations, actually. 
So I just wanted to share again the concept of time. When you're younger, you have something that older investors don't, and that's time. It's really one of our most limited resources out there. And although I understand when you're young, chances are you're you know, 20, you're probably in college, or you have debt, etc. But even if you're able to save, let's say, 75 bucks a week, right? That's about $10.71 a day. Chances are, if you can invest that money per day into the stock market or per month, that equals $300 a month when you're 20. And you continue doing that, 300 bucks a month until you're 65, at an average rate of return of 7%. This is what the stock market has averaged over the last 50 years, 7%. You're going to have over a million dollars in your portfolio. So let me repeat that again. If you're 20 and you invest 300 bucks a month, until you're 65, you're going to be a millionaire. So it's just, it's mind blowing because I, you know, I, I taught this class. I volunteered at a class in high school before, and I was asking the students, like, which one of you thinks that you're going to become a millionaire? No one raised their hand because I think in their minds, you know, being a millionaire means you work super hard, super long hours. You're, you're getting a crazy advanced degree, like a lawyer or doctor or something. And so I went through this lesson talking about dollar cost averaging, doing these calculations. And at the end of the class, I asked them the same question. Who here thinks they can be a millionaire now knowing that 7 to $10 a day, depending on when you start investing, can make you a millionaire by 65? And every single hand went up in that class. So it's really a matter of perspective, right? So as long as you know you have to invest consistently, it is possible. So now let's say for those people who maybe aren't 20 years old, maybe they're starting a bit later. So let's say they're 25 years old. So let's say they have an investing time horizon of about 40 years, right? So that takes them to age 65, which is kind of the current retirement age today. So in that case, by investing $425 a month at age 25, for 40 years, they're going to be a millionaire. They're going to actually have more than a million dollars just by, again, being consistent, having for 40 years the same investment amount, assuming that 7% annual return, they will have over a million dollars in their portfolio. So that's at age 25. Now let's say for those listeners who are possibly 35 years old, when or how much would they have to invest in order to become a millionaire? So if they're 35 years old, their investment time frame is probably going to be 30 years, right? So at age 65, they'll likely retire. So how much money per month do they have to invest in order to become a millionaire? And the answer here is about $900 a month. So you see how the amount, the monthly deposit increases quite drastically, basically doubles from 25 to 35, depending on when you start. So the point here is make sure you start investing as early as possible, even if it's $5 a week, it doesn't matter, as much as you can per week, per month, whatever it is, and keep doing this until your retirement age. And if you keep investing, chances are you will see financial success. It's again, just about that long-term mindset and consistency. Absolutely. It's compound interest. I mean, at its simplest, all this is, is compound interest. The longer you are in the market, the longer you're investing, the longer you're contributing, and the longer that money is going to stay in the market and keep compounding, you're just going to get wealthier. Time is the biggest thing when it comes to the compound interest calculation. You can put in $100,000 a year, but if you're doing that at age 60, you're not going to be able to retire at age 65. Even if you're putting in absurd amounts of money, you need to have the time. An alternative idea I'd like to leave with you guys and present along with this is that I absolutely agree that as early as you can, you should start investing. And preferably with dollar cost averaging, whether that's putting aside a certain amount per month, a certain amount per check, however you want to do it, don't put it off. There is a lot of articles out there, a lot of research that shows that young people today are going... Well, with where I am now, I'm not really making as much right now. I've got a lot of issues, but I tell you what, in the next 20 years, 
when I'm more established in my career, when, you know, I've got the kids, I've got the good paying job, I've got the good house. Once I've got that kind of money rolling in, then I'll be able to invest. Well, a lot of people aren't going to ever get to the point where they feel comfortable that, okay, now's the time to start investing. The trick is to start early and start small if you have to, and then just build it over time. There are a lot of 401k providers now where you can put in what's known as an escalator clause, which means let's say 5% of your pay is going into your 401k this year. If you put in a 1% escalator, what's going to happen is next year, it's going to automatically jump to 6% without you knowing. The year after, it's going to go to 7. The year after, it's going to go to 8. So on and so forth. And then if you have something like that, it gets you in the process of investing very regularly and increasing it. And a 1% difference from one year to the next, chances are you're not going to notice that. So if you start small and start early, the dollar amount now isn't really going to matter. But over time, you're building that habit and it's just going to get better and stronger and you're going to be able to build a much bigger nest egg than if you, quote unquote, waited until you were in a better place to start. You make some really good points, Alex. I mean, absolutely. By even starting small, it's going to build the foundation to healthy financial habits that will very likely stick with you toward the future. Research has actually shown that it takes roughly 66 days to transform a habit into automatic behavior. So as long as you continue sticking with that investment plan for, let's call it, you know, two and a half months or so, chances are you'll carry that, that investing habit down the road until you're 65 or retirement age. And moreover, you know, to your point regarding the escalator clause, absolutely, it's really not going to hopefully show in your take-home pay over the years because chances are you'll also see your income increase. And as your income increases, the more, uh, you know, the percentage is taken out of your income, your increased income, hopefully you won't need that to live off of, which is why that escalator clause is really important. Taking 5% off of 50000 versus 5% off of a $100,000 income, very big difference. So you definitely want to have that increase, that percentage increase every single year, especially as your income presumably increases too. Absolutely. And then Something I want to counter with, or rather, something I want to introduce out there to show just how powerful time is in the compound interest equation. I was doing some math, and for those of you that follow me on Twitter, you would have seen this tweet a couple days ago, or rather, by the time you're listening to this, a couple weeks ago. But I just finished my first year at my new job, and I went back and I calculated my savings rate, and I had a 41% savings rate. So... That was obviously really high. It may not be something that I'm able to maintain for the next, say, 40 years, but I'm trying to retire before 65. So I did some fun math just because I found that out in that I was able to save 41% of my income over the last 12 months. So what I did was, well, what if I'm able to do that for the next four years? Because as you guys know, I'm 26 years old. I just bought my first house. And it's a rather economical house. I didn't max out the most I could afford. And I keep my living expenses rather low. So I was able to maintain a 41% savings rate. If I was able to keep that up, if I don't get another raise and I keep doing a 41% savings rate for the next four years, and then I never put in a single dollar into my 401k after that. So there's just be five years of income. What I did this year and the next four, I would retire at 65, assuming I worked that long, with $2 million. And that's five years of work and saving 41% of my income and then just letting it compound from age 30 to 65. I would have $2 million. That is pretty incredible. I mean, especially the fact that you have that savings rate. I don't think many people have that nowadays, knowing that you're able to save 41% now it's really doing the hard work up front and then being able to enjoy the fruits of your labor down the road. And I think, unfortunately, so many people have that idea of instant gratification or YOLO, right? You only live life <laughs> once or FOMO, fear of missing out, which I understand. I mean, right? I mean, you're, you're young, you're you, you spent four plus years in college, you were in a tiny little dorm probably, 
chances are you, you work your butt off to get to where you are now. So I understand the mindset of trying to spend a little bit of money on yourself. But Alex, I think you make a really, really important point. If you spend just five years, maybe it's even six or seven, but the point is if you spend that small amount of time now and you're able to build up that wealth now, down the road, you are going to be so thankful and really thank your younger self for taking the time, doing those sacrifices to make you get to where you are in the future. And I'm sure your friends, although they might be enjoying themselves more in the present day, they will probably wish that they were where you are in 10 or 15 years from now. They will very likely wish that they did what you did now. Well, if you don't mind, I have a personal anecdote here, but uh, I actually, I'm very open with all my friends about financial independence, uh, the FIRE movement, saving a large percentage of your income so you can retire early. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest responses that I get from a lot of my friends is, okay, so what do you get out of this? I'm like, what? They're like, okay, you're trying to sell me something, right? Like, oh, if I just save, you know, 50% of my income for 15 years, I never have to work again. So what do you get out of this? Like, where's the sales pitch? I'm like, no, 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 this isn't a sales pitch. Like, at no point are you handing me money. Like, I'm just saying invest more in your 401k and that's all you need. And they're like, no, 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 no. okay, but why are you telling me this? Like, what, what, what are you getting out of this? And my response that I tell all of them is, well, I'm retiring at 40. I need people to hang out with that don't have a day job. So I need you to also retire at or around 40 because I need people to hang out with. I love it. And what's their response? <laughs> usually like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like this is usually after like a five minute speech on my five minute elevator pitch, air quotes, elevator pitch that lasts five minutes. Marketing people will get that joke. Uh, my five minute marketing speech of this is why you need to do this so you can retire early. And it's like, okay, well, what do you get out of it? Uh, your friendship? Because <laughs> like, look, if I'm trying to go fly out to the Bahamas tomorrow, I don't need to wait for you to go and request a day off from work because you work for the same person I do. And that's no one. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, when, when I when I talk to my friends about it, they just they typically look at me with an with a raised eyebrow. They yep. shake their heads and then they <laughs> they keep doing what they're doing. I'm like, okay, all right, all right. I mean, they know my stance and I know that a lot of them are like you're you know, they think that I'm a little bit overboard in terms of trying to have other people also approach savings and investing like I do. But yeah, I, I don't get that much buy in either. So I'm I'm kinda with you in that boat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, eventually I think some of them are going to are going to come around, but it's like a lot of people assume like it's some kind of like pyramid scheme that I'm trying to sell them on and this is just the how would you like to be your own boss? You can get a Cadillac, you can get this. Look how successful this guy is, clearly photoshopped picture. <laughs> <laughs> I know that is the funniest thing when I see the when I see them, you know, showing me their their tablets or their phones with these pictures. It's like yeah, you got to make sure that it's not all smoke and mirrors too. <laughs> like you got to remember that the rich quote unquote are what? 70% self-made. Uh -huh. And it's like all of them did it in their own lifetime. Like, how do you think they did it? Some of them started business, but you know what a vast majority of them did? They invested in their 401k and they didn't just put in 5%. That's right. And to go back to my example, I saved 41% but I'm trying to shoot for like retiring at 40. So I know that I'm trying to front load because this is something you can front load. Mm -hmm. If I'm able to save 40% for five or six years, I'm good forever if I wanted to work until 65 or if I wanted to not touch the money until 65. But you don't have to go that extreme. So for me, 40% for five years might get me $2 million at age 65 and I'm cool with that. But for you... Maybe 20% for 10 years will get you to that same $2 million at 65. So maybe you can't do 40%, but maybe you can do 20. Maybe you can do 15. If you can do 15% and then your employer gives you another five for a match, boom, you're at 20% right there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, when you were just saying this part, 
I remembered the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Yep. And like you said, it really, income doesn't necessarily mean wealth. Income just, it just means how much you make really. And someone making possibly $200,000 versus someone making $50,000, if that person making 200K ends up spending 200K or more, chances are they're not going to be wealthy, right? Because they literally spend everything that they earn versus the person that's earning $50,000 or $60,000, but they save 50% of their income or whatever that number is probably that person earning the lesser amount is actually going to end up with a larger net worth. And that's one of these really cool themes that I believe it's Dr. Stanley explores in The Millionaire Next Door. And it really shows, like you said, Alex, a lot of these millionaires, they're self-made, they make these sacrifices, but they don't necessarily have to have these fancy job titles or these fancy degrees. Oftentimes, it's just that regular person next door, right? Your next door neighbor who's just not buying those fancy new cars. They're driving around in 10 plus year old cars. They're wearing older clothes. They go to Goodwill or other thrift stores out there and they just really take care of their money and they live below their means. And I think that unfortunately, because we're a consumer driven society, a lot of that is unfortunately kind of missed, in my opinion, because, you know, people, I think, like having material things, uh, and, you know, obviously as a way to also mix in with the community, mix in with society, show possibly off their social status, etc. But sometimes those material things could also detract from possibly your budget or your financial goals in the future. So you said it very well that sometimes you just have to live below your means. Absolutely. And it's not something you have to do forever. Like That's if right. I can if I can do a 40% savings rate for five years, I can then go to spending a hundred percent of my income until age sixty-five, from thirty to sixty-five, which most mm -hmm. people do anyway. I just front loaded all the hard work. You don't have to do it that way. That's just some, I mean, that's probably not even a way I'm going to do it. That's just some fun math that I did. I mean, I did it this year and I was like, well, I can probably do it for next year. I mean, as long as I, you know, currently I'm unmarried and I don't have any kids and I live in a rather small house for what I could afford. So, I mean, I, I can keep this up for another year. Could I keep it up for another two? Maybe another three. I mean, life changes, especially when you're in your mid to late 20s. But if I can just keep this up, it's going to build Whatever I put away now, it's not going anywhere. It's going to keep compounding. It's going to keep growing. And it's going to do that no matter what's going on in my life. So if I can put a ton of money aside now, I can put away less in the future. So it's just another way to approach it. Definitely. All righty, Fiona. I think we're sort of getting up there as far as the timing of this episode. I have definitely had a fantastic conversation today. Definitely think we're going to have you back on the show, assuming I haven't scared you off yet and you're just sort of hiding it. But before we kind of get to the conclusion of this episode, is there maybe any other topic you want to cover? Well, you have not at all scared me off, Alex. This has been such a pleasure. So thank you for having me. And I think we, we really discussed dollar cost averaging, which I know is a very important topic to cover. We covered kind of the website and we also discussed the importance of financial literacy. So I think we kind of, we got everything down, I, I hope. All righty, me too. And if not, you know, we'll just get you back on next week. No, nah, maybe not next week. We'll, we'll see what's going on. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me this, the standard question I ask everybody, where can my audience find out more about you? Assuming, you know, we had a fun time today and they're like, wow, you know, I do want to see that crispy, crispy website. Um, I know we talked about the website, but where else can my audience connect with you? Yeah, totally. So like you said, that crispy website, I just love that adjective. It's uh, themillennialmoneywoman.com. There is a contact page, so feel free to fill that out. Send me a message. I'd love to connect with you here. And there's obviously always two to three blog posts coming out per week with new financial information, which means more money in your pocket. If you're a social media fan, feel free to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at the underscore MMW. And then finally, if you're a Pinterest lover, you can also always follow me at the Millennial Money Woman. And every day I'll be posting a couple of new pins, new fun and fancy pins. So 
definitely feel free to reach out to me any of those ways. I'm always happy to connect and engage. And, you know, I, I really love hearing feedback too from anyone. So I'm all ears. I got to say, you are the first person I've interviewed that has had a Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was really difficult because I was like, I really like Pinterest. I kind of like Twitter too, though. So I kind of settled for the two. Uh, but fun fact, hopefully here in the near future, there will be a YouTube channel in the works. It's not yet, but that's going to be kind of the next project. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, all of those links will be in the description below. It'll be real nice and easy. You just got to click on it. Bing, bang, boom. It's going to take you to all the links she mentioned, not just the ones she mentioned now, but she mentioned a couple of resources throughout the episode. Those will be also listed below. And I know you kind of said it before, but I got to ask, did you have fun? Oh my gosh. I had a blast, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you did too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And now I do say I have fun every time and I do. I'm a nerd through and through. This is my subject. This is what I like talking about. But I did really enjoy talking to you. I think we had some great chemistry. I think this is a great episode. I'm looking forward to publishing it. Me too. Yeah, I thought the flow of the conversation was super interesting and totally fun, like you said. Not to pat our own backs or anything. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Fiona, before we get out of here, are there any last minute words of wisdom or words of advice that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Yes, to answer your question. And that is, you should build the foundation for your tomorrow by starting today. And how do you do that? By doing exactly what Alex and I just spoke about, which is investing. Start investing today, be consistent, and always have that long-term mindset. Even if it's $5 a day, start now because you will really thank yourself later. And if that's 10 years from now, if it's 20 years from now, or 40 years from now, doesn't matter. Your future self will thank you for the sacrifices that you do today to start investing. So Start today, build your foundation for tomorrow by starting today. Absolutely, guys. The playbook is simple. Spend less than you earn, invest the rest, start early. If you can do that, you will retire a millionaire. And with that, I'll see all you guys next week. <laughs>